hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. McCullough. Uh, Madam Chairman, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, I am probably well known to the committee. I testified here on March 10th, 2021, um, a practicing internist and cardiologist in Dallas, Texas. And uh, I am an expert on COVID-19. I have 56 peer-reviewed publications on the pandemic, particularly how to treat the infection and over 770 overall publications in the National Library of Medicine uh, and well over a thousand overall medical communications. I've served on uh, two dozen data safety monitoring boards for large pharmaceutical and device and in vitro diagnostic studies and I consider myself both an expert on COVID as well as drug and device and biological agent safety. Here are my comments. There has always been a duty to treat COVID-19. It started with the very first case as soon as we recognized that this was a potentially fatal infection. When a patient could have died of this infection at that moment, and we understood it early based on risk stratification, based on age, medical problems, and severity of symptoms upon presentation, there was a duty to treat that patient, period. If a doctor did not treat that patient when that patient sought help, there was a duty to refer. From the very beginning, there was a community, a standard of care. There were from the very beginning, it evolves over time. In many situations like this, or in rare diseases, the community standard of care may be one doctor in that community who's gonna take on the challenge of treating that patient, but that becomes the community standard of care. Early, there was use of a variety of drugs that became standard of care as evidenced by surges in use of these drugs and they included hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, prednisone, budesonide. There were giant surges in use of these drugs as evidence that these were outpatient evolving standard of care. Now there's a surge of use in Paxilvoid and a minor surge in Molnupiravir. There and I can tell you, I went on from there. I waited eight hours, as I mentioned, through bureaucratic presentation after bureaucratic presentation. The committee members now are onto it. These Texas senators understand that early treatment is important. They asked every single bureaucrat that came in front of them who in Texas was treated for COVID-19 to avoid hospitalization and death. Not a single public health official or a medical school official could answer their questions. Let it be recorded in history that officials in Texas who played a role in pandemic response had no idea about early treatment and its role in preventing hospitalizations and deaths. It never came up in their uh, thinking, it never came up in their analyses, and it clearly didn't come up in their report. Now, I had submitted uh, approximately a 10-page uh, prepared statement. I had two minutes for my oral statement, but given the overrun, 
of all the bureaucrats and people ahead of me, I was teed up as the last person in the Texas Capitol Rotunda to give my impression of the pandemic. I had been to the Texas Senate in March of 2021, but that was when the safety data were emerging on COVID-19 vaccines. And I tell you, I felt like I had one chance and one chance only to go on fire and tell the Texas Senate what was going on with vaccine safety on their watch. Let's listen in. We knew by January 22nd there was a problem because the U.S. CDC Vaccine University event reporting system had too many deaths that have already happened with a COVID-19 vaccine than they had from all the prior vaccines combined. January 22nd of 2021, the warning bells came off and then nothing happened. We knew on January 29th through Freedom of Information now, our Center for Disease, our, uh, our U.S. Uh, FDA and Center for Disease Control was supposed to be putting out monthly safety reports for America. No safety report. Lesson learned from this committee, get a vaccine safety committee together. Get them together and start having a meet. If you're not seeing safety being provided at a federal level, remember it's safety, safety, safety. It would have been wonderful if these vaccines would have worked, but it was all about safety. We now know through, through court-ordered documents, freedom of information documents, Pfizer knew about 1,223 deaths within 90 days of release of their vaccine. Pfizer knew about it. We don't know if the FDA knew about it. Nobody did anything. And the freight train continued. Now, fast forward, as deaths started to occur, people started to get very, very uncomfortable. You saw all the pushbacks, protests, all kinds of worldwide uh, uh, feelings of great vaccine hesitancy because people were dying shortly after the vaccine. Papers were published. 50% of the deaths occur within 48 hours, 80% within a week. We know the vaccines installed the genetic material for the Wuhan spike protein that was manipulated in a biosecurity lab in Wuhan, China. There are now a thousand papers published on the spike protein and the vaccines. A thousand that deal with vaccine injuries and they're well characterized. And the FDA agrees. The vaccines cause blood clots. The vaccines cause heart damage. The vaccines cause neurologic damage. They also cause well-characterized immunologic and hematologic system damage. This is in the peer-reviewed literature. This is not equivocal. This is not a subject of controversy or debate. It's in our literature. There are now... I tell you, I let them have it. And there was one final scene in the Texas Senate testimony I want to share with you because this is basically how I left it with this group, given my precious few minutes that I had and all the heartache and all the misery and suffering that the pandemic had brought upon the people of the great state of Texas. I finished my testimony, which uh, in total was about 16 minutes in duration with this final comment about you, the patient, when you're in the hospital and you're sick and you're under duress and you are trying to survive, whether it be SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, the next respiratory illness or the next medical problem. And I was on fire regarding medical autonomy. Any American, any Texan has the right to receive these drugs in the hospital when they engage in a discussion with their doctor. And under no circumstances should any doctor refuse a patient, share decision-making, and their own personal autonomy. It's unethical, it's immoral, and from a clinical perspective, it's illegal, and don't let it happen on your watch. Those are my comments. And that's right. 
The Texas Department of Health and Human Services works for the citizens of Texas. That's the employment relationship. You have a right as a citizen to talk to your employees, which are your public servants, that way. And I let them know, as a person in position of medical authority, to never let that happen again on their watch. The, the title of the Senate panel was Pandemic Response Lessons and Learned. They need to learn a lesson. When the federal government, through a program for mass vaccination, offers no safeguards for safety of a new product like COVID-19 vaccines, it's up to the states. It's up to the states to step in. They should have had vaccine safety committees. They should have had uh, all kinds of um, safeguards in place in order for people to navigate these new technologies and get through the illness. Instead, they sat by and there were countless numbers of injuries, disabilities, and deaths that piled up after the COVID-19 vaccine. We have a wonderful program for you uh, on the show today. Uh, I've brought in for a long program, Dr. Sankarit Chetty, and he is from South Africa. He is the originator of the Chetty Protocol, which was the first protocol I think that became widely uh, publicized because it did not rely on antivirals, that is hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, or even the later antivirals. He really focuses on what he calls the immune hypersensitivity. It's another term that we use for cytokine storm and inflammation. And it's a gripping interview. I can tell you he is a real scholar. He's a real observationist. I've seen his outpatient center that he has in South Africa. Uh, I can tell you this is old school medicine. It's the way it should be. He is an esteemed uh, doctor, uh, appears to be younger than me, but I have to tell you his wisdom is ageless. So this is a compelling interview on the backside. I can't wait to share it with you on the McCullough Report. I just have one quick trailer and I've got to play it. It comes from my great friend, Mark Bruggy, who's a terrific guy. And it just serves to remind me when I get the question, Dr. McCullough, what's behind this? What is behind everything that we see? All the terrible things that are going on with the denial of early treatment, with people hurting other people through COVID-19 policies, mandates, and now uh, the injuries, disabilities, and deaths we're seeing with the COVID-19 vaccine. You're going to recognize this son. I'm not going to introduce it to you.
Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. You just tested positive for COVID-19. It's your second case. You're worried about spreading it to others. Use Cofix Rx. This is the best chance on nasal hygiene and SARS-CoV-2. Go to our website, click on the banner ad for Cofix Rx to get a discount. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix Rx, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix Rx. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. The Genesis Fogger is critically important to breathing cleaner air, which is essential to good health. Almost no one is killing pathogens in the air where they pose the risk of transmission. We've been ridiculously focused on hand sanitizer and other measures where the problem is the microbes are in the air, including COVID-19. The Genesis Fogger is HOCL. It's a powerful tool, not only for living with COVID, but also removing harmful pathogens. Remember, we have fewer virions in the air, much less likely to get a critical inoculum and actually get clinically sick. The same thing applies to the cold and flu, whether it be adenoviruses, coronaviruses, polymyxoviruses, influenza, viruses. And also, there are antibiotic-resistant superbugs. There can be ones, particularly that are airborne, including uh, Clostridium difficile, which is airborne and um, in contact mode. So uh, consider the Genesis Fogger that utilizes HOCL. The Genesis Fogger is perfectly designed. It's a machine that produces a fine dry mist using HOCL that quickly kills germs, bacteria, and viruses in the air and surfaces, and it does it simultaneously. So please go to uh, genesisfogger.com slash outloud and uh, get 15% off your purchase of the Genesis Fogger. That's where the upfront cost is going to be, and I can tell you, you're going to be happy you did it. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. 
Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure for me to go all the way across the ocean and reach out to and have on the first time someone I've wanted had on the McCullough Report for, for months now, and that's Dr. Shankara Chetty. Dr. Chetty uh, grew up in South Africa. His uh, family is actually quite famous for running uh, the, the largest uh, bus firm, 108 buses, they actually ran a huge transportation company in South Africa. He went off to uh, Johannesburg and got his bachelor's degree, uh, ultimately got additional uh, disciplines of study, genetics, microbiology related uh, specialties. Uh, from there, he went on to JSS Medical College in Mysore, India where he received uh, the MBBS degree. And that's how it's typically done in India. It's different than uh, the United States. So it's a, a prolonged period of education there, seven years. He returned to South Africa and did his internship and, uh, in Durban. And then he sought uh, private practice, uh, general private practice in Port Edward, South Africa. And this is uh, in the far eastern stretches of his province, right on the border with the um, Eastern Cape. And uh, he has become uh, really a worldwide authority on COVID-19 by experience and by his inferences, his ability to make careful observations and then reduce them to practice in helping people get through the pandemic. And I think more than anybody in the world, Dr. Chetty has been innovative. He's probably dealt with more varied patients of different ethnic origins. And he's also worked with a wider range of medications than I think anybody in the field. Dr. Chetty, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. And uh, myself, been waiting to have a chat for a long while. Mm. Well, I can tell you, it's been a whirlwind. I was so impressed with so many of your presentations, uh, your data there, how you ran uh, your uh, program, uh, including some of the open air uh, shots that we saw. We've been on programs and videos together. Uh, we don't have time to go through the entire, what we call Chetty protocol, which uh, has been presented in so many different venues. Uh, but we want you to update us because it appears as if South Africa is almost premonitory for us. What's happening in South Africa is going to happen in the United States uh, a, a few weeks or a few months later. And you're developing a great experience and understanding of the Omicron subvariant. So why don't you take it from there? What uh, do you know about the Omicron subvariants and how has the illness changed over time? Uh, Dr. McCullough, the, the uh, Omicron variant started in around January this year. Uh, we had the initial variant, which was uh, relatively neurotoxic, and we started seeing those kind of uh, neurology. Uh, patients were presenting with burning hands and feet, uh, specific uh, dorsal root uh, problems. Uh, so we, uh, we noticed that uh, the initial illness, uh, the viral phase, was uh, pretty similar to what we'd seen previously. Uh, patients had uh, sore throats, uh, body aches and pains, the usual constitutional symptoms, but they managed to get over that relatively unscathed. There were those patients who progressed into a second phase of this illness that presented more with neuropathies. Uh, however, those neuropathies were easily managed uh, using the same modality of immunosuppression and anticytokine therapy. 
and uh, none of them uh, got into any uh, crisis. Uh, in South Africa, we have only about 20, 25% vaccination. And so we see patients uh, having uh, robust immunity from uh, natural infection. And uh, as the variants have passed, we've gotten milder and milder cases. We've seen a lot of reinfections of those previously infected with the uh, wild type, beta and delta variant. But these reinfections are very mild and transient and quite easily managed. Uh, we're now at a point where we're seeing the BA4 and BA5 variants uh, presenting very much uh, similarly to the initial Omicron variant. Uh, there are more gastrointestinal symptoms that we're noticing with this variant, but again, a pretty transient infection, uh, unremarkable. A majority of patients uh, recover without any symptoms uh, or without any sequelae. Uh, however, I've noticed that in vaccinated patients, we're starting to see some nuances that are very different from the typical progression we've seen in all the other variants that we've had so far. Uh, I've had two uh, vaccinated boosted patients uh, in uh, about two or three weeks ago that had sudden cardiac arrest in my practice on day three of their illness. And the illness severity was really unremarkable and uh, uh, the, the cardiac arrest that they went into were not really, uh, there, there, was, there, there were absolutely no pre-existing uh, pre symptoms for that. Both of them were not hypertensive, uh, both had no real uh, comorbidities to speak of. And the illness wasn't that severe to warrant that kind of event taking place. Uh, we managed to resus them. And uh, from that point on, I knew that with vaccinated patients, I'm going to see a different picture. So I've taken the uh, liberty to do biomarkers on all my vaccinated patients, especially those double vaxxed or double vaxxed and boosted, uh, very early on in their illness. Uh, I'm no more waiting for the second week to look for any deterioration. And I found about one in every three of them to have very high CRPs, uh, interleukin 6s and D-dimers by about the second or third day of illness already. Uh, however, uh, those with just raised interleukins and CRPs seem to recover uneventfully with simple symptomatic treatment. Uh, there are those that have a uh, concomitant rise in their D-dimers. And those are the ones that seem to be getting into trouble with uh, clotting events, uh, things like that. So I think uh, we need to start monitoring these patients a lot earlier. What drew my attention to this, uh, Dr. McCullough, was that there was a comparative study done with Portugal where they have a very high vaccination rate and uh, <clears throat> they, they are afflicted by the same variant that South Africa has. Uh, and what we noticed in Portugal is that they have a very high death rate, uh, very, very much similar to the second wave of the pandemic. Whereas in South Africa, there's not much death to speak of with the uh, BA4, BA5 uh, variant. So I knew that vaccines are seeming to cause a problem. And I watch the vaccinated patients a lot more closely than I care about the unvaccinated. And we're noticing these nuances. I've got to find a way to... Uh, risk stratify uh, the different patients uh, and I think the biomarkers early in, in vaccinated patients has been uh, something vitally important in determining who's at risk of having uh, the disease progress rapidly and ending up with uh, severe consequences. So I, I'm not too sure why this sudden increase in IL-6 uh, 
uh, and D-dimers early on in these vaccinated patients. But I'm suspicious that we're having some form of uh, antibody-dependent enhancement or some sort of priming that has occurred that has allowed the illness to progress uh, more, more, uh, uh, far more rapidly than it did previously, and it does in unvaccinated patients. But could it be um, not so much uh, viral, if you will, in terms of viral replication, or could it just be uh, quantitatively exposure to the spike protein? So as people are vaccinated, uh, there's exposure to the messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA, which is prolonged. We have data from Stanford in the United States where the messenger RNA is found in lymph nodes months later. Uh, but the spike protein now, several studies have shown that uh, you know it's in the body for over a year. So this progressive spike protein loading, um, do you think that is playing a role? Then you get the infection, no matter what subvariant we have. And now we just have another acute loading of spike protein that's precipitating uh, microthrombosis, inciting cytokine secretion, et cetera. Do you think that's possible? Yes, I, th I think that's a distinct possibility. Uh, <clears throat> the, the spike protein, we know of its toxicities. And of course, we know that uh, some people have a, a hypersensitivity response to spike protein. So I think there, there are quite a few mechanisms at play, Dr. McCullough. I think those that are at risk of having a reaction to spike protein, uh, anaphylactic or uh, hypersensitivity on re-exposure to spike protein might be that subset that's having a sudden onset early illness. Uh, quite remarkably, the patients that seem to get into crisis with uh, high biomarkers, uh, when, when I draw those samples from them, they don't look critically ill. They have a very mild viral illness. So the, the, the biomarkers are out of uh, synchronicity with the severity of the illness itself from a virology perspective. And I think that indicates that there's some other mechanisms at play, either immune mediated or some sort of toxicity to spike protein that's manifesting itself early on. So yes, uh, I think the spike protein and the uh, immune mediation needs to be looked at far more closely. You know, we published a paper from our hospital early in the pandemic. And it was a woman in her 50s. And she was in the hospital. She was get, getting progressively more ill and uh, ultimately had a cardiac arrest in our uh, intensive care unit. So we could actually observe the rhythm. And it was a, a prolonged QT and then torsade de point, a, a polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. And uh, the interesting thing is uh, she received no hydroxychloroquine. She received no medicine that could do this. And the cytokine that was most out of range was interleukin-6 when we measured it. Yes, uh, I've, I've, I've noticed that uh, as well. Uh, in the first three waves, uh, the wild type, the beta and the delta variant, you could track a distinct progression. Uh, before the eighth day, you had a rise in CRPs and a slight increase in uh, interleukins, but those were uh, similar to values that you'd find in other viral infections. It just indicated an immune response and a slight inflammation itself. But from the eighth day, there was an exponential rise. And the interleukin-6 was the first to go up. Uh, it was followed two or three days later by CRPs and then another two or three days later by the D-dimers. 
So that showed clearly a, hyper, a hypersensitivity triggering hyperinflammation, triggering hypercoagulation. And that was uh, progressive through the three waves. Uh, in the third wave, we noticed the D-dimers uh, rising a lot more and we noticed far more clotting events. However, with the first Omicron variant, uh, the biomarkers were very unremarkable. There was no rise at all. Uh, in patients that showed a return of neuro neuropathic symptoms on the eighth day, the only biomarker that went up was interleukin-6. There was no rise in CRPs or D-dimers. That was the only marker that went up, and it was not really an indicator of severity of the illness itself, like it had been in the previous three waves. Now with the BA4 and BA5 variant, I'm seeing CRPs, interleukins going up, but in some patients vaccinated, uh, I'm seeing D-dimers go up with it, and I think those are the ones that are getting into, into trouble. Uh, I've monitored a few patients without uh, medical intervention to see the trend in this, and I found that the CRPs and D-dimers uh, that go up early on tend to rectify themselves spontaneously by the seventh or eighth day. So, but, but the rise in the interleukin-6 is quite drastic for just a viral illness. The values usually I would encounter in the first, uh, in the viral phase, are usually nothing more than about 50 uh, at the worst. However, in the second phase of the illness, I've had values go up to four and 500 at times. Mm. In this uh, variant, I've had a patient just last week uh, that I insisted on testing. He wasn't that well, that unwell. He was aware of COVID. Uh, he got tested coming in from Zimbabwe. It was his fourth day of illness. Uh, he just had mild uh, body aches and pains. He had tested positive for COVID, so I did his values. Uh, his, uh, his CRP was 14, very slightly raised. His D-dimers were normal, but his interleukin-6 was close to 300. Uh, I, was, I was in two minds about intervening, uh, being early in the illness. So I watched him clinically, and five days later, we repeated all his bloods, and everything had returned to normal. So I think that rise in interleukin-6 uh, needs to be looked at more closely and figure out the underlying mechanisms causing that, that marker to go up. I think it's central to uh, a lot of the pathology we see. You know, prior to COVID, the, the leading um, factor associated with elevations in interleukin-6 was, was adiposity or obesity, since interleukin-6 is produced by adipocytes, particularly abdominal adipocytes. Have you made the observation that heavier people, more obese people have higher interleukin-6? I, I haven't seen that, uh, Dr. McCullough. Uh, with, the, with the severity of the illness, I found very little correlation between the second phase of illness and any pre-existing or comorbid conditions. Yes, there was uh, a correlation between outcome and I think that's, that's expected. Uh, patients that are obese, uh, hypertensive, diabetic, uh, any comorbidity would, 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 uh, would stall the outcome and give you uh, poorer, poorer outcomes. But I don't think they play a role in the initiation of the illness as such. I think there's something else at play that initiates this illness because I've had patients in the peak of health uh, get into trouble. And I've had patients with uh, comorbidities, uh, previous histories of stents, uh, who had absolutely got into, tr got into trouble, but got out of it relatively without consequence, uh, being caught early and treated early. Uh, 
So I think uh, it's the progression that gets influenced by comorbidity rather than the trigger of the illness itself. So let me uh, present a paper to you that's uh, just come up on the preprint server system uh, in the last uh, two months or so. And uh, the first author is Mura, M-U-R-A, Cameron Mura from uh, University of Virginia in Charlottesville, United States. And the title of the paper is Clinical Evidence for Improved Outcome with Histamine Antagonists and Aspirin in 22,516 COVID-19 Patients. And uh, there, um, they analyzed uh, uh, outcomes with uh, treatment with uh, histamine 1 receptor antagonist, loratadine, acitrazine, uh, and the uh, histamine 2 receptor antagonist, famotidine. And what they report uh, here, which is, and they use a good um, case matching comparative uh, outcomes uh, analysis. And again, it's a large sample. So these are outpatients who receive these uh, as part of the doctors, you know, you know, attempting to help them in practice. Those who received the best out of all the groups was those who received famotidine and aspirin. They had a 45% reduction uh, in the, the um, uh, in the risk for uh, getting worse, requiring respiratory support, uh, being hospitalized, or death. Um, and this is a very large sample size and, and not a randomized trial, but, but boy, is, as good as you can do. Um, what's your reaction to that? Do you think that's... Uh, is that- I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's uh, relevant information. Uh, with, with the work that I've been doing, we, we all knew about the steroids and the ability of steroids to suppress the uh, progression of the illness post eighth day. And that was the first tool I used in the pandemic in the first wave. And it took about two or three days to see good benefit with about a week to resolution of symptoms, even in the most severe of patients. And of course, I had to go to higher and higher doses if I wasn't getting clinical benefit. But my attention was drawn to this being some sort of immune uh, hypersensitivity or hyperreactivity. So the very next, I think when I saw the fifth patient present in that way, I added an antihistamine. And the antihistamine of choice for myself was promethazine, simply because of its broad, diverse action. Uh, Being anticholinergic, anti-muscarinic, it has sedation, anxiolytic properties, uh, it's anti-emitic, it's used in the treatment of dystonia. So it it had a broad range or ambit to its uh, ability. And in the first patient that I treated with promethazine, I saw a remarkable recovery. Uh, She was, uh, within a few hours, her oxygen saturation recovered from 80% on day eight. Uh, By day nine, she was up and about like nothing had happened. And I've had that kind of response to uh, promethazine throughout the pandemic itself. Uh, However, with uh, formotidine, Dr. McCullough, uh, in the second wave, we had uh, gut pathology. And I was under the impression that that gut pathology was related to uh, hypersensitivity in the gut itself, an allergic reaction in the gut, because the symptoms were not just related to the, uh, to the gastric uh, symptoms. We had bloating, we had intestinal cramps, diarrhea. So it seemed that the entire GIT was affected. And so I started uh, cetirizine here in South Africa, another H2 blocker. 
and it was one of the only medications that seemed to work. None of the PPIs, none of the other symptomatic treatments had any benefit. But once I put a patient onto set, uh, cimetidine, uh, H2 blocker, all the gastric symptoms settled. Uh, I think uh, something else that uh, is important, uh, Carlo Brogner in Italy uh, did a study recently where he showed bacteriophage activity with the virus itself, the ability to infect gut bacteria. And uh, uh, it, it came about, it came to the fore with the examination of long COVID patients who seem to all have some sort of gut upset. And it seemed that patients with previous gut pathology were more prone to developing long COVID. Uh, and of course, with the bacteriophage activity and the infection of gut bacteria, there's a, there's a production of toxins, which are some neurotoxic, some cytotoxic. And I think uh, that's, that's something uh, that needs to get looked at as well. I think the benefit of antihistamines in the treatment of COVID covers both those mechanisms, both uh, an immune uh, dysregulation and it covers a toxicity. Uh, if a patient came to us with a certain toxicity, got bitten by something, we're unaware of what it is, then the modality of treatment would be about the same. A steroid to suppress uh, any overt reaction and then trying to mop up any mediators with antihistamines, anti-leukotrienes uh, and the such. And of course, a platelet, platelet uh, activating factor suppressants. So uh, the antihistamines, I think, are vital if instituted early in the way that the disease progresses. You know, I think it's important for the listeners to understand that when doctors are faced with a brand new illness, a brand new pathogen, SARS-CoV-2, the illness COVID-19, and now we're presented with a brand new clinical uh, dilemma of people who have received the COVID-19 vaccines, what we need to do is exactly what Dr. Chetty has done, is actually careful observation, making as many observations as he can, and then responding to those observations with empiric approaches that have scientific rationale. This is, this is one of the purest examples of this being done. Others have said, and many know this, we've had U.S. Senate testimony on this, that we should wait, that we should do nothing and then do randomized trial after randomized trial until the randomized trials tell us what to do. And, I, and many of you know, I disagreed with this on the floor of the U.S. Senate because th this is one of the few times in medicine where it is all about observation and empiric management. Dr. Chetty, what's your response to that? I think you're exactly right, Dr. McCullough. When we're faced with uh, such sudden critical situations, we don't have time for clinical trials. The clinical trials are not ethical in, the, in the, this situation. Uh, you've got to look at what's in front of you. You've got to make understanding of what's there. And you've got to try and formulate a response to that based on the knowledge you have gained. Uh, so I expect that uh, randomized trials have their place. I think it's more a construct of the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, it gives us an understanding of the unknown. So if we're looking at a new drug, and how it works, then we do a randomized clinical trial and we get a bell-shaped curve of its effect and our focus would be on the center of that bell to understand what's happening. But when we deal with the new illness, we're not dealing with something unknown. There's a vast experience out there with, with viruses and how they work and uh, what they cause in the body. And so we have a basis of knowledge. 
And so when we look at patients and what's happening with the illness, we get a bell-shaped curve as well. But our concern is more with the tails of this curve and the unusual patients and the unusual presentations and trying to make sense of those presentations so that we can understand the nature of the illness. So I think the unusual presentations give us a lot more. And I think uh, a lot of science comes to the fore uh, when physicians uh, sit in the doctor's lounge at the end of the day and discuss all their unusual cases rather than any randomized trials. So I think it should be left to people with experience to make sense very early on of what we see. And of course, with medical intervention, we have drugs that we've been using for many years. We're well aware of the, the, the risks that they pose. We're well aware of their safety profiles. So we shouldn't be restricted in trying those drugs. We're not posing any risk to the patient itself. And by assessing the speed to recovery and clinical outcomes, it gives us an understanding of the underlying mechanisms that we suspect to be at play. And that's the way we solve medical problems, not through any randomized trials itself. So I think uh, clinicians, by tying clinicians' hands during this pandemic, we've stifled a lot of development in treating patients and uh, adversely affected their quality of lives and the outcomes. Well, there's no doubt that uh, you weren't stifled and, and uh, I wasn't stifled in our practice of medicine, making observations, uh, empiric treatment choices. Uh, I've been fortunate. I've tried to publish as much as I can, given you know the limitations that we have in terms of speed of publication and bias at the level of the editorial offices and the journal. But you know we've been talking now for greater than thirty minutes, Dr. Chetty, and we have not mentioned hydroxychloroquine, ivermexin. Paxlovid or molnupiravir. We have not actually not managed, mentioned uh, a drug that would be organized uh, to reduce viral replication. Can you give us your thoughts throughout the pandemic about how management could be achieved without trying to address viral replication as the as a primary pathogenic driver? Okay, uh, when it comes to the virus itself. Uh, I think the trust in natural immunity can't be ignored. Uh, with all the patients that I've seen with COVID, every single one of them had viral symptoms. Every single one of them by about the fourth or fifth day of illness showed signs of improvement. That's a clear indication of a robust immune response that you're managing to curtail the infection without really any intervention. And so I think the virus itself is easily dealt with by our natural immune response. There were those patients who showed signs of a high viral load, having severe joint aches and pains, very high spiking temperatures. It was only in those patients that I considered decreasing viral load and with uh, drugs like hydroxychloroquine. But I used that for very few patients and very far between. It was wholly unnecessary. Symptomatic treatments seem to bring complete resolution from the viral phase of the illness. So I think that the, the mortality and morbidity of COVID illness lies in the second phase of the illness, which is due to reaction to spike protein. So my understanding of the illness has always been that the primary pathogen in COVID illness is spike protein and not coronavirus. 
coronavirus is just the vector for spike protein itself. So I've never really put any effort into antiviral therapies. And I think that brings my perspective on the vaccinations as well. The vaccinations only seek to curb the virus itself, but uh, this, this disease is not so much about a virus, but more about a protein and the body's uh, response to that protein itself. So antiviral drugs really didn't have a place in me treating COVID. And we've seen that with antivirals in hospital treatments, they've really shown not my, uh, no benefit. I think by the eighth or ninth day when a patient eventually gets into hospital, their viral loads are already on the way down and they already have a good immune response to the virus itself. And we're dealing with a completely different kind of pathology in the second phase. And so antivirals won't really be of any benefit at that point in the illness. Uh, I've also noticed that patients with very uh, low viral loads who had very transient mild viral illness in the first phase had very severe illness in the second phase. There was no correlation between the two. So I didn't see a benefit of actually attempting to decrease viral load in an attempt to decrease the severity of the second phase of illness. I didn't see a correlation between the two. So antivirals really have played no part in the, in the treatment that I've instituted with patients. I don't see it as a, as a common drug or a common modality. It's never been a common modality in self-limiting viral illnesses, and it might impact on our ability to develop a robust immune response. Well, I can tell you that is such innovative thinking. It's just the opposite of uh, the Western world thinking right now, where there's just such a hyper-focus on the virus with uh, monoclonal antibodies. Now we have uh, Paxlovid, which is a chymase-like three inhibitor plus a protease inhibitor or molnupiravir, which is a polymerase inhibitor, the use yes. of remdesivir, which is a polymerase inhibitor. There's a hyper-focus there. And I think your innovation, which influenced me in my practice, is to focus much more on inflammation. And, and the term you use is hypersensitivity. And I know how you're applying it because there are principles of hypersensitivity that are occurring in our patients. And then when a paper comes in from University of Virginia, where it's famotidine and aspirin and a substantial mortality reduction, that's one of the biggest mortality uh, in, in heart outcome reductions that we've seen in observation. Uh, Dr. Chetty, it looks like you have been proved right on so many of these principles that it does take drugs in combination. The middle and back end phases of the illness are far more important than the initial phases. And it makes sense. People don't die in the first one or two days of the illness, but they certainly do after two weeks or, um, you know, I've had a death in my practice uh, at six weeks into the illness. Um, we've done autopsies on these deaths. And at that stage, the lungs are filled with blood clots. Yeah, I think we've, I think, uh, Dr. McCullough, we've missed the pathology. Uh, focusing on a virus and thinking that we're dealing with a viral pneumonia was where the mistakes started, where things started to go wrong. Uh, we've all seen viral pneumonias previously, and we understand the symptom presentation in that kind of pathology. And with the first few patients that presented to me breathless post-eighth day, I realized very quickly that it's not a viral pneumonia. There was no crepitations. There was no fluid in the lungs. The cough was dry. 
the patients had no symptoms of severe illness, so no fever and that kind of thing. Uh, patients were just breathless. They were just breathless, but if you examined them from afar, you wouldn't know that they were acutely unwell. And when I looked at the, the pulmonology around the illness, they were able to breathe easily. There was no restriction to airflow as such, so no wheezing sounds. Uh, their uh, ability to expire was uninhibited. The only thing that I noticed was an inability to take a deep breath, and that indicated the lack of elasticity in the lung or lack of expansile capacity. And that ties in well with uh, a sudden inflammatory process in the substance of the lung rather than any secretions filling the lung itself. So the lung itself was swollen, tissue being swollen, and that would, that would impede oxygen transfer and it would impede the expansile capacity of the lung. And that's what drew my attention to this not being a typical pneumonia. There was some other pathology at play. And so I considered it to be a pneumonitis triggered by either hypersensitivity or some kind of allergen or exposure to something. The progress as well uh, of the, the, the illness, the severity, was what, uh, was what was very telling. I've had patients uh, come to me on a Monday with a sore throat. Uh, it had started on that Monday and it was documented as their first day of illness. Uh, by the second day, they had almost completely recovered. Uh, during that week, they had recovered to the point where they engaged in sporting activities and that kind of thing. And I thought they had recovered completely from the illness. Uh, to the day a week later, on a Monday, uh, they got up feeling tired. By lunchtime, they noticed the onset of breathlessness. And by the evening, we're already becoming oxygen dependent. Now, pneumonias do not progress with that speed. And of course, they were perfectly fine the day before. So that's what drew my attention. This did not follow the progression of a pneumonia. The speed was different. The symptom presentation was different. And so I knew that post-eighth day was where the mortality and morbidity resided. And there was a trigger on the eighth day starting a separate process. And so the, the understanding of a biphasic nature to this, to this illness itself. And I think that's where we as the medical fraternity uh, could have looked a little closer. I think the lockdowns, the isolations all lended to that. Uh, patients were coming into hospital on the 14th and 15th day critically ill. And of course, uh, at that point, it's very difficult to tell what the triggering event was. So uh, doctors in hospital were, were spending their times trying to save people's lives, looking at all the multi-system failures they were, they were presented with. But there wasn't this understanding that it was triggered by a single event somewhere on the eighth day. And I think that's where the uh, examination of patients following the trend of the illness is vitally important. You know, I can tell you that uh, I had the illness myself, and that's exactly what happened, what you described, is my lungs felt stiff. There was a stiffness, like I couldn't fully expand them. I was able to go out and run which I did and I exercised and, you know, it took time to recover. Uh, and this was, I, I imagine I was ill during the alpha wave in the United States. And that's exactly what I felt. Uh, recently, Dr. Hazen and myself, we've published uh, that we can manage patients who have hypoxemia at home, that it doesn't require hospitalization unless, uh, unless patients uh, really can't keep up with the work of breathing or if they cannot have adequate mentation. 
Do you agree with that? I mean, if patients have a, an oxygen saturation below 94%, do they have to be hospitalized or can they be managed at, at home in, in your experience? Uh, Dr. McCullough, I think I was thrown into the deep end with this pandemic. Uh, there were patients that I would have liked to have hospitalized, because, but because of the protocols in the hospital being enforced and showing really no benefit, patients were terrified of being hospitalized. So I had to treat critically ill patients using ICU sort of care on an outpatient basis. Now, the most uh, just just to lend some uh, some credence to what I'm saying, the worst patient that I've seen so far was a lady of 75 years old, diabetic and hypertensive, who was brought to me on the 12th day of her illness. Uh, she lives about 200 kilometers away from my practice. Uh, she got into distress. They called out the paramedics. Her oxygen saturation on oxygen was 45%. She was breathless on oxygen. They had put up a drip for her and they were going to rush her to ICU. Her son insisted that she be brought to Port Edward and he paid for the uh, ambulance for the day. So I was presented with a patient on a stretcher, barely conscious, uh, with a 40%, 45% saturation on five or six liters of oxygen. Uh, I, did her, I drew her blood samples, I gave her a promethazine injection and a steroid injection, and I started her immediately on a high-dose steroid antihistamine, uh, the usual Montelukast. And I advised the paramedics to please leave the oxygen cylinder with her for a day or two. I would expect that her saturations would improve, which they did. I called her back on the Thursday. She presented on a Monday morning. I called them back on a Thursday to reassess. When I had seen her on Thursday, she was saturating at 88% on room air. She could take the mask off. She could speak to me. Uh, from her bloods on the first uh, visit, her CRPs were over 500, her interleukins were over 500, and her D-dimer was, I think, 14,000. Wow. Uh, on the second visit, her D-dimer had gone up to 68,000. But her interleukin-6 and her CRPs showed a good downward trend. At that second visit, uh, she was looking clinically much improved. So I started uh, Zeralto, uh, Rivaroxaban, at 15 milligrams BD. And uh, on that second visit, her general practitioner from, uh, from her town came along with her because he was amazed at her recovery. And uh, this was all still done at home. And uh, he, he, uh, he was educated about what I was trying to achieve. And he contacted me the Monday, a week after I had first seen her. All her clear, clear markers had returned to normal. She was saturating at 98% on room air, and uh, he had no further concerns. I did uh, highlight the, uh, the possibility of uh, developing diabetes later on because of the shock that she'd been through. And I think two months later, he contacted me to say, yes, she's become diabetic, but she's managed well on treatment. So in a case like that, if I could manage a patient like that on home-based care without requiring hospitalization, I think that uh, majority of patients could have been managed with home-based care. I've had patients, Dr. McCullough, with 80% saturations who have improved to 90% and 95% within four hours of administration of the first dose of promethazine. And so in my practice, even though I see a lot of dysnic patients, I still don't have oxygen in my practice. The speed to recovery when it comes to oxygen saturations is so fast 
that by the next day I have patients breathing calmly without the requirement for oxygen. That is such a profound set of observations. And uh, we're unfortunately out of time, so we're going to have to leave it here. But I've learned so much uh, from you. We've covered uh, antihistamines, H1, H2, uh, drugs that influence uh, the prostaglandin system, the leukotriene system, platelet aggregation, and then uh, thrombosis. Uh, and without, and, uh, without, without uh, really having to address the viral replication, which is yeah, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think too much of time has been spent on being distracted by the virus itself, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, it's kept us off the the the, the real the real culprit. And it's phenomenal. The one thing I learned from this is promethazine. In the United States, we call it phenergan. We use it primarily as an anti-emetic, but it is available uh, orally and. Um, that seems like a, a wonderful uh, suggestion, no doubt. You know, uh, Dr. McCullough, with treating patients early, uh, every patient that I caught early and treated early never developed long COVID. I don't have a single case of long COVID in patients that presented early to me. And uh, promethazine seems to have and, uh, serotonin uh, uh, effects. It has this broad spectrum. So I think it might have been the reason that I didn't experience any of the long COVID issues that other, other doctors experienced. So I think promethazine and its broad diversity of effect was vital in the, in the success uh, that I had early on in the pandemic. Well, I, I do change patients over to a milder non-sedative antihistamine once they've clinically improved. Uh, I'm, I'm cautious of rebound on, med on medication withdrawal. That, that's a terrific set of observations. And again, we're going to have to leave it here. I must want you to come back for another session um, as we progress. But we've learned a lot from you, Dr. Chetty. I think historians will, will record you as uh, a leader, as someone who is a true scientist, uh, a true empiricist, and, and most of all, a doctor, a real doctor who stepped up when it was needed most to save as many patients as you possibly could. And um, again, I want to congratulate you for being part of our broader team, Advancing Care for COVID-19 Patients. I'm humbled, Dr. Mercada, and I thank you. I thank you for having me. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.